If you have a Bible, do you want to turn to Psalm 105? And what we're going to do is, well, Psalm 105 to 107. Um, and I want to talk about theological history in this first session. And then Peter is going to pick up and talk about 1 and 2 Kings for most of the rest, well, the rest of today and almost all of tomorrow. And then we will return to theological history, big picture, on Thursday. So that's how it's going to go. Oh, and by the way, I should have said we're going to show the football matches both in here, uh, this, both this evening and tomorrow. I imagine the attendance tomorrow will be very good. Um, I, the attendance tonight is obviously take it or leave it either way. But Spain, Italy is going to be, we'll be showing that in here as well because quite a lot of us might want to watch that and I'll be around. So, um, but no pressure. You can go wherever you like. You may remember actually when we watched the, if you were here, who was here three years ago when we had England? Yeah, you remember that was a great evening. And um, football's coming home came through the sound system just as the last penalty went in or was saved. Um, but Alistair Roberts, who was our speaker that year, left as the penalty shootout was starting. I said, Alistair, having come this far, what are you doing? And he just said, I feel a sense of foreboding, <laughs> which is the way he talks, but it was just marvelous. Um, so if you don't feel a sense of foreboding, you might want to stick around tomorrow night as well. That'll be a lot of fun. Theological history. I, I take, I'm using that term, and as we're going to explore it in the next couple of days, theological history I, I think of as completely different to historical theology. So historical theology is where theology is the thing you're studying, and history is the set of lenses you're looking through to study theology. And in theological history, the reverse is true, where instead of looking at something, using things that have happened as a lens through which to look at God, you're looking at things that have happened, and the lens you're using is who God is. So you're starting, effectively, considering what has happened in the world through history based on theological assumptions. So the question is not, how do you make sense of who God is in light of all that's happened? The question is, how do you make sense of all that has happened in light of who God is? And they're both valid questions, right? We do historical theology as well, quite a lot of it. But this conference is the other way around. This is a, a, an attempt to do theological history, which is to ask the question, how do we make sense of what has happened in the recent, and the ancient past, to be honest, the history of our world with theological lenses on? And this, some of you who were there last year with Carl uh, Truman, we, we, I just threw it open in that final session and said, it would help me to get ideas about what to study. And it was Phil Moore who's sitting over there who just said, I think we should do, not exactly what, what term he used, but effectively, let's do some theological history. How do we reflect on the story of the modern world and the modern West in particular in light of theological convictions we hold? How do we make sense of what's happened in the world? What's God doing through the world, uh, through the history of the world and so on? And that's what we're gonna try and do using one and two kings as a, obviously a benchmark and we're gonna spend most of our time there, but topping and tailing by reflecting on implications for the world as a whole. And the argument for doing that for me is essentially twofold. The first is that it's biblical and the second is that it's inevitable. You will all, we will all do it anyway. So we might as well do it properly. That's the, the idea. The reason, I think theological history is biblical is because an awful lot of this book is, is it does never says theological history as a phrase, but that's what it's doing over and over again. It is trying to use the things that have happened to teach us about God and about his dealings with us and to look at the things that have happened with very clear theological lenses on. And two thirds of the Torah is like that. And it is, it is, it's not mostly law, as you know, about 60, 62% of it by words or something is theological history. It's a way of telling Israel's story through the lens of theology, rather than giving us just law. And obviously there's a lot of that as well. Um, but it's mostly what I'd call theological history. So is the book of Joshua. Uh, or in fact, nearly every book between Joshua and Esther is most, if not all of it, is theological history. It's an account. You, one and two Kings probably is the best example. Um, some might argue one and two Chronicles is an even better example because it's more theologically loaded in some ways, in my, in my view. I don't know if Peter would agree. Um, but you get all pretty much everything between Joshua and Esther is theological history. And so is parts of the prophets, so is parts of the Psalms, including the ones we're going to look at in a moment. The Gospels and Acts, in a way, theological history of a sort, I suppose. And as I say, one or two kings is probably the best example, but I also think it's a very strangely evangelistic thing to do which is the counterintuitive part of it. But the, when you look at the evangelistic, well, the preaching in Acts, I know Stephen's speech is not necessarily evangelistic, or at least if it is, it's not the sort of evangelism that flies in London. Um, but the idea, actually, you read through the speeches in Acts, and you think there's a lot of theological history here. That's what, in many ways, well, Paul is in, in Pisidian Antioch is doing that almost entirely, isn't he? 
Acts 13 is, right, I'm now going to tell you the story of your people through theological lens to try and lead you to, and then effectively gives an appeal at the end. And of course, Stephen to the Sanhedrin, but you also have Peter in Acts 2, which is theological history. You have James in Acts 15, which although again, not an evangelistic sermon, is nevertheless trying to apply theological history to the question that is the answer to which is the reason why most of us are here. That is, yes, Gentiles can come to the people of God. And as I've already seen one delegate doing, eat bacon on their way in, and they're okay to do that. And they can have a foreskin and everything because of theological history, because of the way that God's stories unfolded. And I'm going to tell that story through a particular set of spectacles James is doing. So you can see this is always what God wanted. If you read Amos 9 properly and so on. So I think theological history is biblical. In fact, it accounts for nearly half the Bible. And the second reason I think we should do it and do it properly is that it, I think it's inevitable that you are always going to do history theologically. In fact, even people who don't believe in God effectively do that by telling history in a particular way to try and make sense of the shape of the story. And often what they'll do is say, in this period of history, God overshadowed everything, and then we got rid of him, and we became our own gods, and as a result, this has happened. But they're still telling history with a theological narrative frame. And all of us do that because we tell stories. That's how we make sense of our world. So whenever we tell the story of what's happened, we will do it theologically, and we will do it narratively. So we will do theological history like it or not. One of my favorite examples, some of you have heard me or seen me do this before, but this is one of my favorite examples, is the U-Bend view of church history that was published in Restoration Magazine, if we got that slide. Um, Restoration Magazine in 19, I'm going to guess now because it's not on the slide, 1978, 79-ish. Sorry, this is, this is these guys doing a great job toggling between two platforms that don't want to work together, which is my fault, not theirs, so thank you, Tarek. Um, but this is, you may, you may have seen this, some of you have heard me go on a rant about it before, but this is the U-Bend vision of church history, but this was in a magazine that some of you in this room probably subscribed to at the time. Um, in fact, for all I know, one of you may have drawn it, I don't know. Um, but this is the, the U-Bend view of church history as seen from the perspective of a restoration charismatic church circa 1980, which is that basically the word of God and the spirit of God are sort of in their ultimate form, both at the beginning and at the very end of the story. But pretty much as soon as the book of Acts is closed, massive cliff edge, everything collapses and implodes into stultifying darkness. Right. So dramatic decline. Now, some of you might look at that and say, that's a strange piece of theological history. I mean, I this church was taking over the world. Everyone was becoming Christian. They had the creeds. They had, this is, that's probably the best period in the history of the church. But we'll leave that to, to one side. But that dramatic decline, AD 600 to AD 1500, there's all sort of Thomas Aquinas going, hello. And we go, dark ages of church life, right across the way, across the bottom. And then as the Holy Spirit begins to shed light from God's word and equip God's responding people, the church becomes more and more like us, uh, which is glorious. And the Reformation comes and then congregational Quaker, Baptist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, then, then the Methodist revival, the Moravians, the Sally Army, the Brethren, Restoration Charismatic, Pentecostal, Terry Virgo's at the top, and then the restoration of all things is only just above him, right? So that's, now, this is a little unfair because I know that there was a prophetic, I know, I know there was a prophetic heart behind all of this, and I, know, I don't want to I don't know the guy who wrote it. I don't want to make fun of him in a sense. I just want, but I want to perhaps expose that all of us somewhere have got that kind of historical flow. And it's really a, a highlighting not the particular wrongness of this way of doing it, although I do think that's not great, but the, the fact that all of us are going to do this. We're all going to tell the story of history theologically, and we're going to try and provide, do something to make sense of it. Interestingly, if you were to ask a Roman Catholic, if you were to see the, the book, like the Unintended Reformation by Brad Gregory is basically the absolute opposite of that, right? Which is that the church it starts, you know, kind of starts okay, but the church is oppressed and small and then dramatically expands and grows and takes over the world and becomes Christendom and rules, effectively governs and shapes an entire civilization with cathedrals and universities and all dramatic advances. And then at the Reformation splits into a thousand pieces, swallows the secularist lie and has been suffering for the consequences ever since. So there's a completely opposite way of telling the story. It is a U-bend, but it's a U-bend flipped upside down. Which obviously is not a U-bend, it's an N-bend or something, right? But you understand. Um, and interestingly, that particular shape of the drawer of the chart is, is itself a very enlightenment-shaped drawing. So if I took away all the labels, but I simply left the numbers on, 
and then presented it to, and, and you'd, if you'd read Edward Gibbon, you would say, yeah, that's basically the story. Right? You probably wouldn't say, oh, yeah, the, the great high points of the Methodist revival or anything like that. But you'd say, yeah, that's basically what happened. That Christendom took over the world and everything went dark. And then in the last few decades and couple of centuries, maybe since Newton, maybe since Columbus, but somewhere, someone like Gibbon would say, the Enlightenment would say, oh, we begin recovering and now upwards towards the light. And that's how a lot of secular people would in many ways have that shape to their theological history even if they didn't have any of the Christian labels in it. So my point is, we're all doing it. The, the Enlightenment story that most of us are educated in, even though we would claim not to be, is basically a theological story in that shape. And if we all do it, whether or not we realize we're doing it, we might as well do it properly. That's the, that's the claim. Okay? So that's what theological history is and why I think we should do it. What, is it, what does it look like? Okay, so... In Scripture, I think there are three main purposes to theological history. To praise, to instruct, and to explain. And so I'm going to put up a table, which I'm then going to elaborate on. But there, I think the purposes of history in that sense are doxological, prophetic, and genealogical. And there are no doubt others, and Peter will provide lots of other ways of thinking about this. Um, but I'm, if I just summarize it like this, that there, are, that there is doxological history, that a lot of theological history is done to praise. It's simply done to say, look at God. Look how God has kept you. Look at all the things that have happened, and can you see his faithful hand of guidance and governance and loving care and steadfast love, shepherding everything that happens providentially to a place where he is glorified and you are benefited. God, in that scenario, is the key actor, but effectively doxological history is, or the key actor in history is God. And of course, we know that that's always true, right? So it's not like God isn't the key actor in the others. But the, the focus of the doxological telling of the story is on God. And this is the sort of version that you would find, say, in yeah, Deuteronomy 32, right? the Song of Moses, which is an account of Israel's departure. There's a lot of human willful rebellion in it, but it's saying, ultimately, it's a song about ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are just. And then it just goes through elaborating the greatness of the rock. Despite Israel doing this and this and this, he gave them honey from the rock. He, he, is the, he is the rock. He's the only rock. And their God is not like our. Their rock's not like our rock because our enemies are on their own, but we've got the real one. And so it's a doxological vision of history. It's the kind of, that's the sort of version of history that you find in Psalm 105. In Job 12, 23, the Lord makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations. He leads them away. Just this morning, I wasn't, I didn't, you know, when you read, you might not have this, but when I read the Psalms, I find myself regularly going, I don't remember this one at all. Like, I've, I'm, I know I've read the Psalter lots of times, but I don't remember this Psalm. This morning, I was in Psalm 75, and I just was struck by the phrasing, for not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it's God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. And I like it because of the whole east and, you know, effectively, we don't, yeah, God is, Nations don't get lifted up by the East or by the West. They get lifted up by the Lord, who is judging the nations with justice and equity. And that's why things happen the way they do. That's doxological history. It's, a, it's an account that were it the only one, you'd say, well, is, do human choices have anything to do with anything? But, that's the, but the purpose of the psalm is not to account for how the different layers of agency of God and Satan and human beings and nations and superhuman powers and all of those things interact. That's not what the psalm's doing. It's simply saying... God is to be praised. Look at his steadfast love. He, his love endures forever. And it's a remarkably sort of providential account of history. And that's what you find Psalm 136. It's, Give thanks to the Lord for he's good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 17, to him who struck down great kings for his steadfast love endures forever. I once made reference to this and saying, oh, do you know that? I said, do you know that in churches that sing, I was teaching a group of leadership training students, probably one or two of you may have been there. And I said, uh, I said, you know that in, in obviously churches that sing the Psalms, they literally have to sing the line, Og, King of Bashan, his love endures forever. It's just a very strange line to sing. And then one guy goes, I was a chorister in Liverpool Cathedral, and I sang that song in Liverpool Cathedral. I said, yeah, that's... So it's kind of, there's that, there's that very, very doxological history to the point that the death of Og, King of Bashan, is a reason to praise, because it shows that God has prepared a, a land for us, and he's struck down everybody who stood in our way. So that's the view in Daniel 2, isn't it? He changes times and seasons. He removes kings, he sets up kings. 
No one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar, oh, you're going to get feathers. Right? You, didn't, you thought this was you, but it isn't you. So now your claws are going to grow so long in your hair that it's going to look like claws and feathers. So praise, doxological history. A lot of theological history in scripture is trying to just lead us to praise. That's a good reason to do it. Second type of, doc, uh, second type of theological history in scripture is what I would call prophetic history, which, and its purpose is to instruct or to warn. And in this system, or this, not system, this form of doing history in the Bible, the purpose uh, is, is to challenge and to use it to show from examples of things that have happened before what you should and quite often what you shouldn't do. And the key actors here are more individuals. So the focus of the story is on the individual people who've had highs and lows and made mistakes and we should learn from and never go back. This is 1 Corinthians 10 territory, isn't it? These things. So Paul, telling the same story that Deuteronomy 32 tells about the wilderness, basically, and the Exodus, Paul tells the story and says, oh, these things were written down as examples for us, brackets, you, Corinthians, that we might not desire evil like they did. That's what this story is. So you can tell the, and many, and they do, tell the Exodus story in Pharaoh, look at the steadfast love of God in delivering his people. And you can tell the story as, look at the terrible, terrible things they did, they, these people did and do, don't think about going near it. Hebrews 4.11, let's strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That's, that's theological history, but it's very different from the doxological version. It's a prophetic, or call it what you like, but it's a desire to say, you need to learn from what these people did and never do it yourself. Hebrews 6.12, don't be sluggish. Be imitators of the ones who through faith and patience inherited the promises. It's telling the story again, and Hebrews and 1 Corinthians in particular do that. And they leverage that story for all it's worth to say, you must live the Christian life, mindful of the prophetic challenge that will come to you if you think carefully about, doxological, about theological history. You've got to just read the story through theological lenses and you will see it has a lot to say to you, O oh, Hebrews, Corinthians, Mancunians, whatever we are, right? Sorry, nothing particularly ungodly about Manchester, is there, Jeremy? I don't know. Okay. Um, and then there's theological history done to explain which is very different and, and something I quite enjoy, something I'm working on and writing on at the moment, as some of you know, I find really fascinating the way that Scripture also uses history as a way of explaining why the world now is the way it is. And in this sort of way of doing history, actually the key agents in many cases are families and even nations, they're entire communities of people. And it's, the purpose of it is more to say, the world you live in now has these characteristics because of that that happened in the past. So for instance, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. Right? It's theological history. It's Exodus 1 is a way of saying, oh, we're going to start our story with Israel. With Israel, you reading this story, Israel's out of Egypt now, but I want to remind you where you came from and even why that had happened. You think, well, how did we get from Joseph to that? Oh, well, it's because of this. It's a way of accounting for it, providing a, a genealogy of the world as it is now. Joshua 16, verse 10. However, they didn't drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. It's theological history, saying, you're wondering, what? so what are these people doing here? I, I, I thought we you know, carved a whole thing up, and I thought the men of Issachar went there, and the men of Manasseh went there, and we're here. What are these people doing here? Come on, Dad, what are these jokers doing in our land? It's, oh, it's because of this that happened before. It's that, that's the explanation. So here's the God didn't allow all of us to possess all of the land because when we first went in, we didn't drive them out. And God said, you need to. And as a result, they're still here doing forced labor instead of being driven out. Now, classic example from the books we're going to study and then for most of today and tomorrow. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God in 2 Kings 17, 6 to 7. And that, obviously, 1 or 2 Kings is the classic, isn't it? The world is like this because of these things that your ancestors did. Some of them good, although in the case of Hoshea, not really. Um, very, very few of them good, but a lot of them bad. But you can learn from that story and you can then understand why the world today is as it is in light of all of these events which have taken place. And I think all three of those types of theological history are complementary and some scriptures present all three of them going on at once. And I think there's great benefit in telling that story in complementary ways, in seeing how the different narratives fit together. 
And I love that Psalms 105, 106, and 107 are adjacent to each other. Because Psalm 105 and 106, in many ways, do the doxological one and, and the prophetic one right next to each other and tell the same story in ways that you almost can't believe they're the same story. And some of us have noticed this if we've read them or preached them. But I mean, this is Psalm 105 is doxological history, particularly verses 24 to 45. Okay, just so just you'll turn in there. I'm not going to read a whole of that section. But for instance, look at verse 28. They did not rebel against his words. As a summary, right? How, who on earth could read the book of Exodus and say that? Or Numbers? They did not rebel against his words, verse 28. Verse 37, there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Really? Verse 40, they asked and he brought quail. <laughs> you're like, is that honestly how you're going to tell that story, right? Why? Now, some of us would go, this is crazy town. I've read numbers. I've read Exodus. I know that that's, and we might feel that. I know that's not what happened. He said, no, no, because the psalmist is trying to show you He's not trying to do prophetic history. He's not trying to say, here's how to learn and imitate from these people. What he's doing is, of course, embedded in the context. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. They asked, he brought quite, they did ask, actually. It was not, that's not all that happened, and they didn't ask very nicely, but they did ask, in a way. But he brought quail. He gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock. Water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. So he brought his people out with joy and so on. It's doxological history, right? Deliberately telling the story with a very God-centered perspective to the point that the sin of humanity almost seems to be missing from the story. Then you turn the page and you find yourself in Psalm 106 and you find the exact same story told in a way, as I say, that seems almost irreconcilable with Psalm 105, verse 7, 7 to 31 in particular. The same incidents are described so differently. So instead of they asked and he brought quail, we end up with Psalm 106, verse 14. They had a wanton craving in the wilderness. Right? Verse 20, Psalm 106, verse 20. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox. Which, of course, we know the golden calf story, but that's a key text for Paul in Romans, isn't it? Just using that image. That's what this is. You've said, glory of God? Don't want it. I want to swap it for that. Verse 21, they forgot God their saviour. They soon forgot his works. They didn't wait for his counsel. He gave them what they asked. He sent a wasting disease among them. And so on and so on. And you could read the whole psalm, and many of us have. I'm sure some of us have preached this. But when you read through those two psalms next to each other, you think, how on earth are those two accounts of basically the same series of events intended to be read, not just in the same canon, but right next to each other in the same book? It should prompt the same sort of question we get when, with the famous example in Proverbs, when you go, should you or shouldn't you answer a fool according to his folly? And it says, no, and yes, next to each other. This is supposed to do the same kind of thing in us. How on earth am I meant to make sense of the fact that those things are both true? And of course, they are doing different kinds of theological history. There is doxological history of praise, and there's prophetic history of warning. And then Psalm 107, beautifully, bridges the two. Psalm 107 tells us, obviously, the start of book 5. So you just, yeah, again, turn over again. But you get verses 10 to 15 of Psalm 107. You read, Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God. Right? That's more prophetic. And spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. So that's a psalm that in a way is, is, and you read all of Psalm 107, and you find pretty much all three of these times of history coming together. Why is the world as it is? Because this is what happened in your past. Why did it happen in our past? Well, partly because you sinned, and this is what you mustn't do again, but partly because God did it, and he bowed your heads down, and he made you subject to forced labor because of your sin, but then you cried out to the Lord, and he delivered you from your distress. And I think there are parallels, methodologically speaking, with telling the story of the modern West. In terms of, we need to have Psalm 105 and Psalm 106 and Psalm 107 versions of telling theological history, in my view. So I get, I'll give you an easy example, right? Every Reformation Day, October 31st, most of us call it Halloween, I effectively have, when I say I'm confronted by, but I suppose I am, I mean, it's not 
that dramatic, I suppose, it's just me wondering about it, but I am confronted by the question, do I celebrate this or not? Right? And people, you see it on social media, people take different views on it. Some people will say, this is a day to celebrate, and they will, you know, here I stand, I can do no other, and then you get the pedants going, he didn't actually say that, and you think, oh, it doesn't matter. But, you know, that kind of, and he certainly didn't do it on the 31st of October, 1517, all that stuff. But you get, you know, the 95 Theses, and this was a moment for the clarion call of gospel clarity to, you know, cut through the fog of medieval superstition. You've you got a lot of people who go, no, let's tell this, God raised up a man. And look what happened. You know, God, you know, give me, that give men time, wonderful speech. Of, I mean, Luther could write, couldn't he? And, you know, give men time. I, I just sat and drank beer with Philip and Amsdorf, and God dealt the papacy a mighty blow. It's like, whoa. Okay, that's doxological history. And then you've got another whole load of people who would almost do the opposite and would say, this is a moment for mourning. This is a moment of grief. This is a moment to, to lament the fact that the church is divided and has been divided for 500 years and that many of those nations ended up splitting into a thousand pieces and killing each other for centuries over this. And the church is still fragmented into a thousand pieces. So is it a moment of celebration or a moment of lament? And of course, I think, well, I say of course, I think it's both. I think, it's, I think there are Psalm 105 and Psalm 106 versions of that story to be told. Uh, is it a moment of divine deliverance or a moment of warning against pride and factionalism and arrogance and in Luther's case rudeness um, and many other things right what which is it and he's like, well I think it's both of those things what about industrialization you're telling the story of the modern west that's one of the main things you'd mention one of the probably the most obvious thing that somebody from the ancient world landing in this room would think so it's like, what on earth is all of this machinery how can you see something that isn't physically in front I don't understand and so you'd, you'd how do you tell that story is, it a, is industrialization a gift from God that causes life expectancy to double in the space of 150 years, around, all around the world, not just in the West? Wealth has risen by 7,000% since the 1750s, as in the number of people on Earth has multiplied by seven, and their average wealth has multiplied by 10, which means that we are 70 times wealthier than we were as a planet in a couple of centuries. Do you give thanks to God and say that's God has provided a means for us to make people's lives healthier and wealthier and stronger and often happier and educate people better and all of those things. Do you celebrate it or do you see industrialization as an act of Promethean pride of trying to snatch fire from the mouth of the gods with terrible consequences for the family, calamitous decline in fertility in Western nations with all the implications that has for faith and for the growth of the church and the environment and who knows what else. And again, you'd say, well, there's, there's doxological and prophetic history to be told here alongside one another. Probably the most obvious example today, as in, in the week we, we just had, two days ago, Americans, as they do every year, getting, sorry, Peter, um, getting into a knickers and a twist over the question of how to memorialize or celebrate or lament Independence Day. And again, that blows up on social media with bells on, doesn't it? How do we consider our own history? Is America a providential force for good? Is it something that God has raised up to light the world? Is it a warning of how greed and the violence it engenders, and in some cases even, some would say, genocide or ethnic cleansing or equivalents thereof with Native Americans and obviously with slavery, even, that greed can corrupt even the best intentions and turn it into an absolute sham and spoil even something that has very high noble hopes that money will always get you in the end and destroy the dreams. Which is it? Um, I recently watched, um, I, don't know how, I don't know how many people have seen the movie There Will Be Blood with Daniel Day-Lewis. It's probably the best movie performance I've seen this century. Right? It's just an extraordinary movie. And uh, Daniel Day-Lewis is this sort of oil speculator guy. But it's just such, a, there's a couple of astonishing scenes in it where Daniel Day-Lewis and Paul Dano, who is the local pastor, they basically forcibly baptize one another. Daniel Day-Lewis, they never use the word baptize in the oil scene, but Daniel Day-Lewis forcibly baptizes Paul Dano in oil. And later in the, in the movie, Paul Dano basically baptizes, Daniel Day-Lewis has to ask for his forgiveness, and he basically forcibly baptizes him, slaps around in front of the whole church. And they are incredibly strange, unsettling and powerful scenes, I, I think. But it's sort of extraordinary, it's a, a pow very powerful movie for showing, th this, is what, this is the question the Americans are always asking, like, which of these two stories is gonna win out? Does the oil guy eventually baptize the church in oil? Or does the church eventually baptize the money in water? 
and cleanse it. And I don't really know. And you're left at the end of the movie. I won't spoil it. It's a very powerful uh, scene at the end where there's a, a, effectively a third baptism in blood takes place. And it's, it's a remarkable film. But it just makes you think, okay, this is almost, I think, at a very clever level, a way of trying to navigate two different theological history tales. And they're still playing out. And they were with my friends on Twitter debating this as they do every year. Uh, two days back, some people saying this is the day to call for national repentance for all that we've done to African-Americans, Native Americans, and so on. Other people saying this is not the day to do that. This is the day to celebrate that, yes, we're flawed, but, and all opinions in between. Now, just to lighten the mood a little bit, England doesn't have this problem because as we, we trace our national story back, <laughs> I heard this said on Tom Holland on The Rest is History, uh, just recently saying, England are amazing. We trace our national story, our national myth goes back to 1066, which is a battle that we lost to the French. That's basically, so our national myth is, look at how we got taken over by the French. And then I saw this meme shared by a French, guy, French friend of mine online, and I just thought it might make you laugh. Um, three main types of English people. Native Britons, swarthy and hobbit-like, they are the aboriginal inhabitants of Britain. They are of middling intelligence and naturally subservient to their betters. Celto-Germanics, descendant from various pre-Norman invaders, they're brutish and stupid and have yet to master the English language. They tend to be unruly and antisocial, but easy to manipulate. And then it was called, shared by a French guy, French Normans, <laughs> incredibly handsome guy, a small minority, almost identical to the average Frenchman. They have ruled England since the 11th century and preserved their existence by creating the British class system. They include the nobility and every Briton who ever achieved anything of note. <laughs> Um, so we don't have the, quite the same theological history. We don't have a, a national myth in the way that Americans do. We do, of course, have our own dilemmas about how to theologize our national history. And actually, it's, what's, it's contested right now. It's contested in, you know, I don't like the phrase cultural wars because I think that's an American import by and large, but you can see it, can't you? It's happening every day in the papers, you'll see something of it. You'd see it played a part. It's not the only factor in Brexit, but it's part of that story, I think. And our debate is over the effects of what you might, if you're being cheeky, called the missionary industrial complex of the 19th century. So how do we, how do we theologize the fact that mission, which is a, in large part a very good thing, sharing the gospel, sharing the gospel is always a good thing, but what mission was actually even in the 19th century was much of it was very good, but it was accompanied with and powered by and funded by and inextricably associated with all sorts of other things that we might want to lament and not just praise. So how do you make sense of that? And how do you tell the story without, dis without whitewashing your own past, but also without throwing lots of incredibly noble, wonderful examples of godly men and women who put their lives on the line to share the gospel with people and throwing them under the bus? It's, and you have to tell the Psalm 105 and the Psalm 106 versions, in my view. A case study to think about. Let's take the most prominent uh, controversial example in the Western world right now. Have you got the remaining slide, by the way, is it, uh, of the, um, the big wheel? Yeah. So the most prominent controversial example in the Western world right now, some of you have probably seen this, uh, the graphic that's going to appear, um, if you may have seen it before or you may have seen, heard me teach on it. In fact, there's one or two who are here. I did some teaching on this very recently, so sorry about that. But this is the system of thought that variously, depending on whether you like it or don't like it, gets referred to as if you don't like it, you call it identity politics or grievance studies or wokeness. I mean, wokeness is a contested term because that's changed its meaning even in five years. Uh, or critic, some Americans often call it critical theory and say that's a bad thing, but some of them then say it's a good thing. And others would call it intersectionality or they'd call it social justice or that might be called the successor ideology or just called Twitter. Um, and that's basically a way of thinking about the world through the lens of domination, power, privilege, and oppression. And a few weeks ago, I was, I mean, I've, just, I've seen Andy LaRue, um, maybe one or two others who are, who are here were there, um, and I was asked, literally, they said, they said to me, could you give an hour's talk on the cultural challenges facing us today and how to respond? I was like, that's the most preposterous title I've ever been given, but I really enjoyed it. And so I just thought, in some ways, if I had to summarize it in one page, I'd do this, which I didn't create this, it's online. You can, it's, it's a good summary of intersectionality, I think. Um, and in the US, this is splitting churches and denominations painfully and powerfully as we speak. Uh, this is, there is a huge, has been a huge uproar in the Southern Baptist Convention, as you probably, well, many of you may know, in the last six, nine months, much of it focused on this sort of way of thinking, not this chart, but this way of thinking about things. Uh, in the UK, I know of churches and denominations that are, this is probably the single thing they are arguing about the most. 
and are most likely to split over this. I've had people, had someone in the Archbishop's Council get in touch about someone I know and say, are you aware that this person taught this in this church? You know, this is proving a problem as a, as a framework. I don't mean good or bad. I just mean it, the, the issue is very divisive. And what it, what it effectively says is that the whole of the human race is divided into people of privilege and people who don't have it, which is, I think, to some degree, you would say, well, that's kind of obviously true, and that the axes for mapping that privilege are multiple. There are 14 traced out here uh, based on sex and gender and race and Europeanness and whether you're heterosexual or not and whether you're educated and whether you're physically able, how old you are, how attractive you are, uh, your class, your language, your color. Your, whether you're a Gentile or a Jew, and whether you are fertile or not. And by that standard, depending on whether you think I'm attractive or not, I score 13 out of 14 on privilege, okay? I get 14 if you think I'm attractive. Um, or maybe depending on what you mean by young, actually. I mean, we, it's somewhere in the sort of 12, 13, who's counting? But anyway, and so I'm very much... And that, that, now, by the way, brief comment. A lot of that's obviously true, right? But as, as a fundamental axis for considering humanity, it also has problems, which will divide communities and do but there's some wisdom in it as well and in fact we probably all acknowledge there is and that there's some some you see some of it in the bible i often quote the, the slave the demonized slave girl who paul meets in Acts 16 and most of us who've preached on it have probably said something like this she's a slave and a woman and demonized she's got a triple whammy of right well you're effectively saying she's these different sorts of oppression intersect in her life that's the claim we've made and so people who, people who love this say, we are challenging the elite, right? We are, the, the elite in our world is a patriarchal, cisgender, heteronormative, married, ableist, white, male, racist, sexually abusive, hegemonic world of privilege and power, where when the Grenfell Tower burns down, poor people die, and white men who are responsible for making all the money out of it go away scot-free even five years later. We are challenging the elite. And of course, the people who hate this also think they're challenging the elite. Because they say, no, we are challenging a faddish, smug, Islington, Guardianista, hypocritical, affluent, graduate, vegan, snowflake, bien pensant thought police who want to silence disagreement and have grown men in your daughter's changing room and only allow poor people to get any advantages at all if they can prove on paper that they didn't vote leave. And basically, both groups are saying, there's an elite which I'm challenging, and, my, and your system represents the authority structure, and I'm trying to overthrow it. And both groups are contesting that and falling out over it. Now, why am I making that point in a context about theological history? Because I think, us, if, as much as I've got a solution to this challenge and how to navigate it, and by the way, there's lots of nuance needed here. Some of those axes, I'd say, I don't think that's helpful. I think, by and large, that's going to lead us up a total cul-de-sac. Others of those axes are indispensable, and if you're not mindful of them as a pastor, you will ruin your church. Because, of course, to take an obvious example, black women face challenges in this country that white men do not, and the fact that they're black and female rather than black or female causes a kind of collision between two kinds of challenge that reinforce one another in important ways. And if you don't know that, you won't be able to pastor black women very well. Right? So there's some of them are very obvious, and others of them you say, that's just crackers or that's not a form of privilege in fact the privilege chart might be the other way around the reason i'm saying all that and putting it up there is because i think that one of the best responses we can make is to do theological history and to try and tease out what's the psalm 105 narrative here and what's the psalm 106 narrative and maybe the psalm 107 one as well so here's what happens if you don't do that next one a lot of our church members are rabbits in the headlights i had somebody this happened to me day before yesterday I played football, uh, no, what day? Saturday. I was playing some football Saturday afternoon, and a friend of mine who plays at the football said, uh, Finn's at the end, of the end of the match, we're walking back to the car, and he said, can I just have a couple of minutes of your time on the way to the car? What is woke? Right? And what he's read about it, he was, he was down the pub with some friends, they're all talking about it, he's a social worker, they're all debating it, some of them are very pro-it, and he's not quite sure what it is, some of them are very anti-it, and he's not quite sure why, and he's just, what is it? Right? Now, a lot of our church members are caught like rabbits on the headlights going, this is a period of rapid change. 2014 to 2017, a bunch of events happen in a space of three years that bring huge seismic, it would seem, social change in the modern West, and much of this is in America or Britain. First gay marriage in the UK, 
ISIS proclaims a caliphate, Eric Garner is killed, Mike Brown is killed, the Ferguson riots spark, Black Lives Matter begins, effectively at that point, Scottish independence referendum, Tamir Rice is killed, the Charlie Hebdo attack, Islam versus free speech debate, Obergefell versus Hodges legalizes gay marriage in America in early 2015. No sooner as that happened than Bruce slash Caitlyn Jenner appears on the front cover of Vogue. A migrant crisis in Europe following the collapse of Syria, which obviously is then connected to the Brexit referendum. Barack Obama issues gender identity guidance saying basically if somebody wants to be treated as a girl when they're a boy, then you need to treat them that way. Philando Castile is killed, Donald Trump is elected. Barclay riots, Antifa is launched, you know, the anti-fascist movement that I, wasn't, I won't make that remark. Um, at Charlottesville and Donald Trump, you know, there's sort of the KKK rally with guys with torches and hoods, and Donald Trump says there's fine people on both sides. The Me Too movement begins, and on and on and on, right? But that, in that three years, our church going, what on earth has happened? I mean, your church may not be, but a lot of churches are going, what, what do we do with that? This has come out of nowhere. And uh, I think Douglas Murray calls it the, the Nicky Morgan phenomenon. Uh, after the former education secretary who opposes gay marriage in 2013 says she's for it in 2014 and by 2015 sees opposition to it as possible evidence of extremism. And that's almost like a, how do you make sense of what's happened? This is so fast. Because we haven't got theological history behind us. But when you dig under the surface issues, like obviously there are some surface issues that have massively amplified this, like the existence of social media and the existence of Donald Trump, both of which have made the whole thing much more visible and prominent than it would be, and the collision between the two. But when you dig under the surface issues until you reach bedrock, you basically find theology. Right? When you, get, you, you keep digging, you've, the bedrock in any society is who is God around here, and how does that God demand to be worshipped, and what sort of sacrifices do they require? And you can answer that question with this issue in mind in two very different ways. Can you put the next one up? Right, the Psalm 105 version and the Psalm 106 version. If you like the Psalm 105 version, which you'd find in somebody like, so this is like Tom Holland, right? And several of the, several of the books out on the bookstore would do this, something like this. And I think, by the way, both true, just to spoil the end. Psalm 105 version says all of those changes are essentially the fruit of Christian theology because what happens is Christianity's got a built-in moral imperative towards emancipation and freedom. Which it does. We preached on Luke 4 in our church just a few weeks ago. You can't deny it. It's, right, it's all the way through, the Magnificat. I quote, I was preaching to the camera for Sunday's message in here about six hours ago, quoting Zechariah 1 and the way he talks about the birth of Christ. So there's no getting away from this, right? And he has thrown down the mighty from their seat and exalted the humble and meek. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. The world is going to be turned upside down and the people of privilege and power are going to get brought down even as the people of humility and poverty are going to be lifted high. And of course, Jesus enacts that in the crucifixion, making himself nothing, taking the form of a slave. And the argument of many, Tom Holland and other, you know, some fantastic books there that would be worth reading if it's at all a new idea, that basically if truths like those are believed and preached and acted upon for long enough, it can transform the moral imagination of a civilization, which has huge implications for the dignity and rights of women, children, foreigners, slaves, the colonized, and all victims everywhere. And therefore, the impulse, which some of us might go, oh, what on earth are they doing? I, like, I, don't think, I don't think the idea that they should have you know, boys in girls' bathrooms, for instance, take an obvious example that people, or changing rooms, but the impulse to do it actually comes from the same place as the impulse to provide special needs schools, which is effectively, there is a victim here and it's very difficult for them, and we want to make it as easy as we can for this poor, oppressed child who's struggling. Now, I might think that actually there isn't, I don't, I don't think that is wise. I think the changing room thing is an unwise application of an otherwise desirable moral imperative to try and help somebody who's extremely vulnerable and oppressed. Now, most societies don't do that. Christian ones and ex-Christian ones do, because Christianity has shaped the moral imagination to such an extent that you now think, even if I owe nothing to this person, I don't even know their name, I have an obligation to them because this is an image bearer of God. And my whole moral framework is based on the fact that greatness involves laying your life down in order to lift up the oppressed and the poor. Because that's what Jesus did, and he's the dominant figure in our cultural narrative. At the same time, there's a Psalm 106 version, which is to say, no, that entire wheel, that framework, is a result of modernist atheism. It's a result of the rejection of God. And this, in a sense, is also true. Because you can trace it back to the idols of the modern age and the key fathers of modernist thought who correspond to them. 
money, tracing through from Marx maybe to Gramsci, where it's no longer money, but culture really, that the world is divided into oppressors and oppressed, exploiters and exploited. Oppressed peoples unite, revolt against your oppressors, and through the mid 20th century, the focus gradually shifts to cultural and social structures rather than financial power. But basically, that's, that's one of the gods that's shaping that wheel. And so everybody's an oppressor or the oppressed. Now, of course, the biblical picture is much more complex. You might, you might have a huge amount of power in that shape, but in this area, you don't have any power at all. And as a result, you need to leverage that power to offset the fact you don't have any of this power, and that might get you a new form of power. It's not as binary as the Marxist system makes it look, but that's dominant for a lot of people in academia and our culture. And then, of course, you have sex. From Freud through to Marcuse and beyond, Carl who spoke last year, Carl's book on this is out there, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's a very good tracing of that story, how primarily how the, you know, the self got psychologized and then psychology got sexualized and then sexuality got politicized. And Carl, so Tom Holland's more on this side, Carl would be more on this side, I think, saying this is primarily a negative thing. And they would have different views of the, the wheel I just showed you as a result. Um, and you can, yeah, you'd be familiar with the story of how the idol of sex has shaped our modern culture, and then finally with power as well. That ultimately human beings are motivated by the will to power, and over time that morphs into the claim that power is the essential feature of all human relationships, and truth claims in literature, religion, and politics are just power plays. Now, you put all of those together and you say, okay, I can see how the system, if I call it a system, this view of this view which many in our churches are trying to come to terms with in some form and which is being expressed on the radio and the newspapers every day is in some ways very Christian. It's almost Christian to its logical conclusion in some ways, and in some ways is totally anti-Christian and idolatrous. And both of those stories have a place and you only get the genealogy of where you are if you combine both the doxological bits. A lot of this is to be celebrated and the critical bit which is to say, no, there's a lot of this that is hooey and we need to call it out as, as such and help our people sift which is which. I think I'm going to pause there. I think we're going to finish with a few, if we, if we do, we have a, maybe a few minutes of um, time for questions or anything like that. I will do this where probably if you can be heard, if you'd like to ask anything that's just prompted by a thought there. I've, I've talked for a long time, so I'd, I'm not going to get to speak again until Thursday. So I just thought I wanted to get it all in. And um, we had a few notices at the start um, so I might, I might just give this five or ten minutes if there are questions, and if there aren't, we'll go and, and have a break. Um, but anybody want to throw anything back? A reflection, a thought? Somebody be the first to go. What did I say to my friend in the car park? Well, the nice thing is, of course, you live in a town of 100,000 people. You get to see him at the car park, and then you see him when he's out for a run the next morning. So you get to tell him a second bite at the cherry and say, look at today's times, because it's got an interesting story you might like. Um, I basically did um, a... Uh, I hope an easy summary of the final page. I said what I, I basically gave a, a quick summary of where the terms come from. I said I, I didn't I hadn't even heard that word until early 2017. My Jamaican friend who goes to our Catford site here in this church told me, "Have you heard of this?" And I was and I was like, "No." And I was like, "It sounds like I really need to." And he said, "Oh, great!" And he just introduced me to loads of great content and stuff. He said, "This is," what, and at the time it was almost entirely a word meaning basically the conscious community and the black community that's what it that's what the word meant in 2016 and 17 and my quick potted history of it was that that word then in the course of 2017 18 got particularly under the influence of the social media trump thing got co-opted more and more by not mainly within the black community but mainly within the progressive white community as a, a label for basically being socially conscious on all the areas of access of, of privilege and so on and then what happened is in about 2019 and 20 a, big, a backlash begins in which people now if you see that word used in the newspapers in britain you assume it's being used by someone who doesn't like it and is saying this is a load of nonsense i expect that's what most now if you said the woke you know what when he when he asked it i then quickly said you know what what did they say who was talking about what and He's basically, now it's being used. And so in five years, it's gone from being a word that a Jamaican friend of mine who's a Christian brother in the church, a wonderful Christian, would use of saying, this is something like Eric Mason wrote, woke church. You know, this is, this is something the church needs to be aware of, racially aware. And it's moved from that in five years to a word that people on the right would use to say, this is the kind of nonsense that they're trying to teach your children about. So, and that's why you're hitting a moving target all the time with these things. And to be honest, even now, it probably means different things in different parts of Britain, let alone in America as well. 
So I basically summarized that and then said it's got a, there's a Christian backstory and an idolatrous backstory in what, it, in what I think you mean by it, Andy, and this is how they come together. I didn't quite get it done in five minutes. It took about seven. And then I saw him on the seafront and said, oh, you should also read this. So all right, as a starter, Trev. Given, given the rapid, rapid speed of change, the Nicky Morgan phenomenon, where do you see us being in 10 years' time? I'm terrible at this game. Like, I'm, I'm the person that, when my friends say, Donald Trump's not going to win, it's, I know. And they say, is Brexit going to happen? No, I'm sure it won't. Tories aren't going to win. I'm, I'm awful. Basically, I live in a, a, a bit of a Twitter, but even for, for, considering I'm pretty conservative morally and ethically, I still live in a pretty lefty graduate Twitter bubble, so I don't really know, um, which is not much use. My, I think what happens is that the, because the, the only estimate I would make is that the, the rhetoric of the debate shifts from a particular... Once you've got, you feel like you've got equality here, you then move on to what's the next thing. And what I think has caught a lot of people by surprise is that whereas in 2015 it was gay marriage and everyone said the next frontier is trans rights, what happened is actually that the, I think through partly this, the um, violence in the in the American policing system, particularly towards black men, meant that actually uh, the racial issue, in the context of a lot of ordinary white people looking on who are progressive, became a lot more important than the trans. And then the trans one has almost now got a sort of this dilemmas happening all the time, saying, "Oh, actually, who's being harmed more here?" Because obviously there is a there's a feminist backlash to that, and that dilemma is still going on even today. I'm reading about the I can't remember the person's name, but the weightlifter who's allowed to compete, but Caster Samania is not. And that whole debate, so all of these different, it's like the confusion comes over, I don't understand, does this person have more privilege or status than that person? And that becomes very contested. I don't know how that's going, I wouldn't, I'm just hopeless at guessing how that turns out. But I think, I think for us, what we need to do is, of course, is, as, as many of us pastors and teachers, is to, without necessarily doing deep dive and spending years reading everything on it, I think to be able to say, some of this is good, some of this is bad, but the good bits actually result from Christian. Let's affirm that, because otherwise we throw it all out and say, oh, this is all the, you know, the, the, whenever anybody says the something agenda, I always find myself thinking, this is not a very nuanced take. Because, yeah, there is, there probably is an agenda. We all got, I've got an agenda. I've got a Christian agenda, but I don't really like it being called that. I, I think what I need to do is say some of this is, even in people who are quite angry with me, they've got that anger from fundamentally Christian assumptions. Somewhere, some of it, some of it they have. But they've also swallowed a whole lot of other nonsense, which I need to be very clear is not true. And so this is, like for all of us, a live issue for me. And I, yeah. as it happens, Jason and I are doing some training on it, <laughs> veterinary-related issues next week. So this is something that's very live for us, even in our church. Like how, do we, how do we help the church navigate exactly these questions? So, yeah. um, from pastors and leaders of churches, what are the distinctive changes in our roles? I think in many ways the job, the job title hasn't, has never changed, has it? You're, you're, trying to, you're trying to teach the whole counsel of God and you're trying to pastor people, you're trying to help them die well and care for one another and love their neighbors and share the gospel and all those, pray for the sick. But I, I think it's just that the, the kind of cultural issues you're grappling with are completely different. And we, we've got to remember, it sounds like, oh, this is another new one to tool up on, but of course other ones just drop off. Like, I don't have to respond to the new atheism anymore. I don't know any new atheists now. Maybe I, maybe I should, but I don't. I, I'm just like, th this is not, you know, th that's kind of fizzled out. Like, no, people aren't quoting Dawkins at me. Even in Alpha, people aren't going, oh, have you read Sam Harris? I'm like, Christopher Hitchens, they wouldn't know who they were, maybe. Um, and they probably wouldn't be even throwing 9-11 at me. They probably wouldn't be saying this is all about the warmongering nature of the West trying to destroy. They, if they did, it would be through a colonial slavery lens rather than through an Islamic crusader lens, which it was even just 10 years ago. Um, so in some ways, I'm, I think what happens is you just every generation produces new challenges and you go, okay, well, this is the one we've, we've got now. I'd say the one. It's lots of challenges bundled into one. But I think in that sense, I don't think our jobs change. I just think that the, that's probably the most pressing issue for most of us. And again, I can't generalize for everywhere. It's, that's, a, that's a big issue in London, and it will be a big issue in university cities and a big issue in probably most of Britain, but there'll be parts of it where it isn't yet. And that's, I say yet, maybe it won't be. Maybe the issue will have moved on before that happens. So you've got to know your own people, haven't you? But I, I, think, I think this is probably the cultural challenge. And so for me, I'm just, I'm connecting the dots to th this kind of thing all the time in preaching because I'm just trying to help people just take the sting out of it. Um, and not everyone's called to do that all the time. I'm not saying we are. I, I, I think you've got to, this is to do with your role in the church and your 
gift and experience and all those. So I'm not, you know, it's not like we must all go, let's do a sermon. I've never done a sermon on intersectionality and I never will. But I'll probably in some ways do sermons on it all the time. But just not quite like that. So that, I hope that helps. I'm sure that's something you'll bring. I don't know if we've got time to do it, but I'd love to see how you walk through those three approaches to, uh, to, one, to a particular issue. So I'm, I'm going to try and, we'll have tried to do that twice by the time we finish. One of them is to do it with this exact issue. That's exactly what I'm trying to do, really. Is Now, the genealogical is to try and give the foundations behind both the God has done this, or this is a good fruit of Christianity. It's a good problem to have. If your generation's going to be ripping itself apart over anything, it might as well be we're trying to make the first last and the last first. Right? It's, there's worse problems to have, but there's a problem as well, and there's a warning here and so on. So that's kind of case study one. The other one I will do... I might change it because often in these conferences I change my last session depending on what's said and what people are asking. But I'm planning to do the same with the sort of the history of the whole of the Western world in session seven, which is the first session. I'm, so I knew Howard was going to laugh, but yes, you know what I mean, right? Okay, so I will try and do that again by then. And if that hasn't worked, then I've failed and I apologize. But I also think Peter's going to help because he, Peter's not going to use the same framework. I expect I've seen his notes, but uh, and read his book. But I think he will come at this from a probably a much more illuminating angle in lots of other ways based on the story of kings which i'm sure will help us phil and we'll do we'll do two more questions if there are yes yeah, so i'll do phil and then andy Yes. Well, I'm definitely going to let Peter answer that question. So, Peter, the question there that Phil has asked, there's a, it's a good, it's a, a question with several parts to it, but the one king's bit would be, could you touch on, is, is there something fundamentally parochial about one and two kings, um, in the sense that it's got a very narrow focus on one nation, and therefore it's not attempting to tell the story of everything. Um, I think Peter may well have some comments on that, be interesting to see. Um, but, but, and certainly, is that true of even the story I've told? Of course it is, to some degree. I, to be honest, Pope parochial is, in, you know, is, well, it's a, it's a negative-sounding way of saying, based on the parish, isn't it? It's basically saying, this is a local, in a bad way, way of telling a story. And I think to some degree, we, we've, got to be able to, we've got to be able to see the story at our immediate local snapshot. So I've talked in that last session where he talked about things that are happening in the nation, things that are happening through our nation and America in the world, and then probably just a couple of minutes ago said, but I actually think this might well not be the primary issue in some of the localities we're in. So I probably think we've got to toggle between... I need to understand this in a sense because it's the world I'm in and it's the newspapers and the media, but I also need to know my people well enough to know, is that really the issue here? And if it's not, this isn't going to serve them. Or it might be I can cherry pick. And I'm going to say, well, the issue, actually the question about what are you going to do with boys and girls changing rooms is an issue because the state has control over that and it will affect the schools in this area whether the people like it or not, whereas that other issue over whatever else is not such a pressing issue, so I'll address this one and on that one. And I think that needs yeah, wisdom and enough local awareness. I, I don't, so parochial is a pejorative term, but I, I think, yes, there is something intrinsically local about our application of these principles, and I think there should be, because, I, yeah, I have, if, I had to, if I was now to be a missionary in Japan, all of the books I've read on almost everything would be totally irrelevant, and I'd need to just start again, and that's what contextualization is. So, yeah, I think in that sense we are all parochial, if I can use that term, and should be. Um, Andy, last question. If you, do, if you only have the prophetic version of history, you become shrill. And if you only have the doxological view, in, in a, I mean, not the, no, 
you can't have too much praise, right? But what I've called the doxological view of history, that this is basically God is doing things and isn't it great? You end up with, you know, like what Voltaire said of Leibniz, so always for the best in all possible worlds. Everything's great. It's all fine. You just, you just have your leg chopped off. Oh, don't worry, all's for the best. And you can end up doing the theological equivalent of that and actually become very gullible. I think that's the risk, is you go, well, this has grown out of Christianity, so it's all fine. And this would actually be an area where I disagree. I mean, sorry, I should have. Tom Holland at one point was going to come and do this session, but he, believe it or not, had, had to bail because of cricket. Um, so, <laughs> so I said, that's fine. Go play cricket. And then I kind of secretly came, let it be rained off. <laughs> and maybe it was, I don't know. Um, but actually, this is one of the areas where I disagree with him, because I think he traces the sexual revolution too much of the sexual revolution he attributes to in my view to christianity and sees that's a natural outgrowth of christianity and i think no some of that has come from specifically not christian sources specifically the three i mentioned at the, towards the end and i think we need to walk the line and, and it, the, the challenging thing is self-awareness because no one thinks they're gullible and no one thinks they're shrill so how do you know where on that scale you are which way and sometimes we might overcurrent and think well my risk is of being too gullible and it's like, no, actually, I think your risk is of being too shrill. And we've probably seen people who have that, you know, the feedback loop is making them more and more extreme. I think being part of a church, being part of a movement, reading and being part of events like this means that most of us are probably not total outliers, because otherwise we probably wouldn't be here to talk about these things. Um, but I think self-awareness is a challenge there, and that's probably a, a good place to, to finish for a break.